When a father holds a young child as they learn to walk in the first steps, from the young child's perspective, that young child maybe holds tightly to the father as he, from his father's hands, but he navigates the world, and he always sees the world in front of him, barefoot by barefoot, each and every step. He is clinging to the father for support. From the father's perspective, he is holding on to his child's hand intently, watching his child navigate his expanding world. The father is holding tightly to his child. This child is clinging to the father. Who is holding whom? This is actually a picture of my grandfather with my oldest that was the picture before. That is not a picture of my grandfather or <laughs> the oldest. Who is holding whom? Certainly, the child is holding on to the father. But at times, the child might get excited and let go of the grip or is not strong enough to hold on, and so he might misstep. But the father's grip is secure and firm. The father will not let go of the precious and beloved child. He might let him stumble he might let him scrape a knee, but never lets go. Oftentimes, swooping in in security of the arms when the child is weary and tired. So it is with our relationship with God. From our myopic perspective, it may, may seem that we're making our choices independently, and certainly we make choices independently. Like No one is in control of our choices, but yet the Father always holds our hands. The fathers grip the hands of his beloved children, and he guides us through his life. And at times, he allows us to stumble, but ultimately, he protects us from the evil one. We are holding the father's hands, and the father is holding our hands. Let's look at John chapter 10 a little more intently. Verse 22, at the time of the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, just for our present-day perspective, the feast of the dedication is what we would call Hanukkah. Right? So it's a wintertime festival. It's a, uh, it's a celebration that's actually not in Scripture. It's in the intertestamental periods of the Maccabees. But it's a festival that they participated in. And so this is just a reference point for us. And they asked Jesus a question. But it's not a question. It's an implied negation. They're really kind of the idiom saying, how long are you going to keep annoying us and speak in all these kind of riddles to us? Will you just speak plainly to us and tell us who you are. You see, they're not actually eager to know the truth about Jesus. What they're eager to know about him is they want him to plainly say that he is God, that he is divine, so that they can kill him. This is their want. They want. We see this throughout John. This is that their plan and their copy, but they need a clear proclamation from him. It's like, man, he's just speaking in riddles and showing us things, but it seems like he's saying this, but when you just tell us, Jesus, who are you? And then John 10, 25 says, Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness to me. So, 
I told you. And now Jesus hasn't really been totally explicit with them. It's been really implicit as we read it, like, man, this is really obvious. He has sometimes communicated in parables, which he just did the week before in this good shepherd, communicating who he is to people. He's communicated via signs and miracles. All the signs and miracles are are prophecies that point to who he really is, that he is the Lord of this universe. And in John 20, verses 30, 31, John tells us the reason why these signs and miracles are actually included. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So Jesus tells us parables. He's got uh, signs and wonders that all kind of point to him. Sometimes... Very few times in the gospel, he's very explicit to people. Think about the times that he's very explicit. He's explicit to the Samaritan woman, an outsider. An outsider, he says, I am God. I am he. I am the one. He tells it very clearly. He doesn't beat around the bush. But with the Pharisees and with the, all the Jews that aren't believing, he does not speak clear to him. So why do some believe in Jesus? Because this is the reason it says that you do not hear me, you don't understand, because you don't believe. You don't know who I am because you don't believe. So why do some believe, and then why do some don't believe? In verse 26, Jesus lays it out. This is why some believe and why some don't believe. You don't believe because you are not among my sheep. I just want you to let that sink in. That is a heavy word. You don't believe, you don't know who I am because you're not my sheep. You don't, be, you don't belong to God. You don't know that I am God because you don't belong to God. It's the implication is very clear. We believe, you and I, because we belong to God. It's not we believe, therefore we belong. We belong, therefore we believe. And therefore, the other implication is that you who don't believe, because you don't belong. It's It's a clear start. It's not that our belief starts whether we belong or not. We belong, and therefore we believe. And if you don't belong, you don't believe. This is what Jesus is saying. It goes to the point of why actually Jesus speaks in parables in his ministry. In Mark 4, 11 and 12, or why he's elusive in his conversations. Mark 4, 11 and 12, and this is the disciples asking him, like, can you just tell us what you're saying in, in these parables? And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And may de- indeed hear, but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus speaks clearly, I speak in parables so that only those that belong to me can understand, and those that don't cannot understand. He says this in Mark 4 in the context of the parable of the good sower. In the parable of the good sower, right, Jesus spreads uh, seeds into the path where the bird pluck it up. He spread seeds onto the rocky ground. He spread seeds onto the uh, thornies and the weeds. And he spread seeds on good soil. 
the application here in this parable and the way he says why I speak in parables is just as Jesus does, you and I ought to. You and I ought to speak and live out the gospel to everyone. To everyone, no matter what, no matter who they are. We are to live out and speak the gospel clearly. Jesus does this. The difference between Jesus and us, there's lots of difference, but one difference between Jesus and us, Jesus actually knows who's his sheep and who's not. You and I don't get to know who's his sheep and who's not. We can know if we're his sheep, but we don't get to know if others are his sheep. Only Jesus knows that. But we still are told to proclaim and live out the gospel to all people. Jesus says, you don't believe because you are not my sheep. John 6, 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. The grace of God is not that we believe and therefore we are his beloved. The grace of God is this. We are his beloved. Therefore, we believe. The grace of God is clearly this, that we are his beloved. It's not because you believe. Belief is the outcome of that you are beloved. That is the grace of God. In verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Last week, I asked the question, what do God's sheep do? What do God's sheep do? Right? They know the voice of the shepherd. They know the shepherd intimately, and the shepherd knows them intimately, and they obey the voice of the shepherd. God's people know his voice. They know him intimately, and they obey his voice because they love him. In verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. He's talking about his sheep. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. The gospel is about God's giving, not about our giving. The gospel is about God's giving, his, un, his undeserved giving to us, which is grace. This abounded, undeserved giving. We don't deserve to give, get anything from God, and yet he gives to us. This is the gospel. This is his grace. We don't deserve it, and yet he gives abundantly. And what does God give and do for his sheep in this passage? Number one, he gives eternal life. In the previous uh, passage in the parable, in John 10, he says, I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Not just everlasting life, but life to its fullest and abundance, the definition of what life is. This is what Jesus gives his sheep. Sheep. By definition, I just want you to think about this. By definition, if God gives you eternal life, can it ever be taken away? No. It's the gift of eternal life, right? It would just be, I give you temporary life. No, he gives you eternal life. It cannot, by definition, be given away. God gives eternal life. The other thing that God says he gives his sheep, he guards and he protects them. No one will snatch a sheep from his fold. In John 6, 37 through 40, all that the Father gives me will come to me. 
and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives the Son, he will not lose. He will not lose. In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, this is a complicated verse, and we're going to break it down a little bit, but this is one of my favorites. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, it says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. According to his grace, his mercy, he has caused. We have not caused. This is his doing. He has caused us to be born again, to have new life, everlasting life, to a living hope, to hope that, that's living for a future that's continually living, that's alive, that's not dead. How is this through? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is this living hope? It's to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, that God has this gift of this inheritance for us. And when, when I, we talk about heaven, we have to be careful because heaven in Scripture is not just a place. It's a place. It's, it's, it is a place that is to come, but it is more a place. The scriptures actually talk about heaven breaking in right now. When Jesus entered the world, heaven broke into the world. We're just not realizing it's full. Here's the, here is a good definition of heaven for you. This is the, this is the beautific vision of God. So the, the beautiful vision of God. Heaven is the place where Jesus is present and rules. As soon as Jesus enters into the world, he is the Lord and ruler of the world. He never gives that up. Heaven is breaking in. It's breaking into our hearts, into our lives. We manifest it by living out in the spirit, in the fruits of the spirit. Heaven breaks into this world. Now, ultimately, heavens will be created in a new, new earth and a new heavens and a new sky and a new place, a new creation, and we will all be in that place where Jesus reigns in full and there is no sin. Right, kept in heaven for you. But here's the point of this verse. Who, by God's power, are being guarded? Now, who is us? That's the antecedent to who. It's his people. It's his people which he's done this for. Who we have been we are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are being guarded for this. God gives us this, and we are being guarded by God through the mechanism of faith. Faith is the mechanism in which God guards our hearts and minds. In this world. Now, this actually makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense for me, and I'm learning more and more each day, that each day it takes faith to live in this world. I like to live in this world with tangible things. This is what I control, this is what I don't control, this is how this is my reign, and this is my rule over my things, and that's my world. But here's the reality. The more and more we live in this world like that, the more and more we realize we have no control and things just happen. And the reality is we have to trust. 
We have to trust that there's more than this, that God is actually in control, that God actually wants good for us, that God is doing good for us, that he is guarding us for this incredible gift of everlasting life by faith. But that faith is his gift to us. This is God's gift by guarding us by his power, which is faith. We are sheep are being guarded and protected for the inheritance that waits for us. Why can no one snatch us from Jesus' hand? He says it clearly in verses 29 through 30. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He says, listen, the father gives me the sheep. I don't lose my sheep. How is this possible? Well, it's because my father is greater than everything. My father is the, the author and sustainer of all things. He's Lord of everything. Nothing has power over him. There is no equal to God. And here's the kicker at the end. I and the father, oh yeah, we're one. We're united. And like, hmm. That seems pretty explicit. It actually is pretty explicit. This I and the Father are one. Jesus is referencing Deuteronomy 6.4, which is the Shema. Which is the Shema is, oh hear, oh hear, oh Israel. This is the most important prayer. Jews begin the day with this prayer, and they end the day with this prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Two important things. Pay attention to ourselves and everyone else. Pay attention. This is what this prayer is meant. This is our God. We are His. And He is one. And Jesus quoted like, The Father and I are one. Hear, O Israel, the Father and I are one. And I am your God. No one can snatch me. No one can snatch you from my hand. No one is greater than me. Let me just summarize the situation in which Jesus had explained. There's God's people, his sheep, and there's not God's people, not his sheep. The sheep are known by the shepherd. Not God's people. God doesn't know them, and they don't know God. The sheep, God's people, follow God. They follow the shepherd. Not God's people. They don't follow God. God gives his sheep eternal life. They don't have eternal life, only temporal life. And here's the kicker. God guards and he protects his sheep. These people are exposed to God. That is a terrifying thing to be exposed to God instead of protected by him. You see, I, I want you to understand the depth of the reality of what... What does God save you from? He doesn't save you from sin and death. Those are the outcomes of sin. What he actually saves you from is from his wrath. That is the thing we ought to fear. That is the thing that actually destroys. Nothing else destroys. You either are guarded or protected, or you are exposed to God. 
all of this highlights in this passage the important doctrines of grace. And one particular that I'm going to highlight today. These doctrines are gay. In Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. We, we have talked about this, particularly in, in Advent, we talked about faith is not just a faith present, but it's enduring faith. It's a suffering faith. It's a faith that endures in this world and lasts until the end time. It is a faith that is being tested by God to endure the temptations of this world, this, this inevitable shadow of this world to live this, the reality in which he's giving us. It is a major theme that we aren't just to profess faith, that we are to possess it day in and day out. And you know, in your faith, in your walk of faith, it is a struggle, isn't it? It is not, if you are looking at a chart, it is not an always upward trajectory of your faith. Like, man, I'm just growing in faith all every day. It's just getting better and better. That is not your experience of faith. It is up and down, up and down. And there's doubts, serious doubts in our life. If you have doubts in your life, I want to reassure you, everyone in this room has doubts. It's who we are. God gives us faith in ups and downs in our life. Hopefully, it is an upward trajectory. But this is the, the doctrines of faith I want you to understand clearly, this idea of enduring faith that God gives us. The doctrines of grace are this. We actually might, you might heard of them as tulip. These are the doctrines of grace, right? There is total depravity, that we're all broken, that we're all fallen. There's unconditional election, that there's nothing you can do that actually causes God to elect you. This is his free and independent choice. And there is limited atonement. I mean, God saves all that he intends to save. There is irresistible grace, that God's grace is so compelling that no one could ever resist it. And the one that I want to live in today in this scripture is the perseverance of the saints. This doctrine of grace, of the perseverance of saints. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way. Those whom God has accepted in his Son and has effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit can never completely or finally fall out of their state of grace. Rather, they shall definitely continue in that state to the end and are eternally saved. So just a couple things. They can never completely and finally fall out of their state of grace. Does that mean you can not be in a state of grace for a moment? In part, right? You can, you're going to have those ups and downs in your life, meaning there might be a stage in your life or a stage of someone you know life that God has saved them, but they have fallen away and they're going on a different path in their life. But this is God's work, not their work. It's not even your work. This is God's work in their life. And if he has called them, if he has died on the cross for them, he will bring them back and completely save them. He will finish his work in them. Philippians 1, 6 says this, I am sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The ones that God chooses, God protects. His sheep, he guards and he protects. No one will snatch them from his hands. 
This is the preservation of the saints. The God that chooses protects. Salvation is God's grace. God's grace alone. It is the state of grace. Salvation begins in eternity past. Your salvation. He chose you before the foundation of the world. So your salvation is realized in time, in your life, in the present day. Day in and day out, it becomes realized. But it is also, it looks forward to the fullness of heaven and that reign with Christ. It is past, present, and future. It has already been secured. It is being realized out for a future manifestation. This is God's grace in your life. The perseverance of the saints. And a better way, instead of the perseverance of the saints, it's actually God preserves the saints. It's the preservation of the saints, that this is what God is doing, preserving his sheep, his fold. This is his incredible grace for us. It goes on, the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says this, the endurance of the saints does not depend, right, this, this endurance of faith of the saints does not depend on their own free will, but on God's unchangeable decree of election flowing from his voluntary, unchangeable love. Just think about that. Right. It, it, God's protection of you, his preservation of you, does not depend on the action of you. It does not depend, man, I choose to be protected by God. It depends solely on his choice and his voluntary love that he declares for you. It is motivated. This choice is motivated for his love for you. It goes on. It also depends on the effectiveness of the merit of the intercession of Jesus Christ and the indwelling spirit and the indwelling seed of God in the saints. I just want you to think about this. What does it depend on? The Father's eternal decree and love for you. It also depends on the effectiveness of the work of Christ on the cross. And it depends on the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit that indwells in you, that starts off as a seed that begins to blossom in you. It depends on the triune God, that God works in all these ways for you. And more than that, what does it depend on? And on the nature of the covenant of grace. This all depends on a God who makes promises of grace to us. It depends on his word. And because God always keeps his word, he does not lie. He always tells the truth. His word will come to be. You see, the difference between you and I, we can keep promises and we can declare things. And I know I have declared promises to my kids. And sometimes I have learned more and more not to utter promises unless I know I will keep them. So I don't say much to my kids now. It's <laughs> basically what, what happens. No, but I think God speaks clear. When God, he has the ability to whatever he says will happen. You and I don't have that ability. We can say something. We can make some things happen. But this God can make all things happen because this the power of his will makes things happen. So the, the effectiveness of God's preservation and guarding protecting you is because it's dependent upon all of his actions and his word and his promise to you. 
This is what the Westminster is saying. All of these establish the certainty and the infallibility of their preservation. Meaning, God preserves you. God protects you. God guards you for the promise in which he's given you, that he's creating you new, that the salvation that he is working on you, that he has kept for you in heaven, will be fully manifested. This is his work, not your work. And it's not that we don't do anything. I just want you to hear clearly. It's not that just we're just passive participants. We are active. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great blessing. He who calls you, God, God is the one who calls you, is faithful. He will surely do it. What will he do? He will sanctify you. He will make you holy. He will keep you blameless until the day that he comes. This is God's work. This is the doctrine of grace. These are all that tool. This is the doctrines of grace. God alone saves. We have a, a fancy theological word that's called monergistic, the monergistic work of God. And so it comes from the word one work. It is God's work alone. I want to explain this a little bit more fully. If you think about salvation as justification, what Jesus does on the cross, you think of sanctification, what he's doing in the Holy Spirit with us now, and ultimately in glorification, right, in heaven, this is God's work. It, this is all the monergistic work of God. It's one work of God. Justification is clearly his work and his work alone. None of us went to the cross. In fact, we actually put Jesus to the cross. Sanctification, though, is the synergistic work. It's still a monergistic work. It's still God's work alone. We couldn't just manifest this work. But, but we, we respond to this work. The Holy Spirit moves in us, and there is an outward response to us that we agree in our own will to do. Why do we agree to that? Because our desires have been changed. The Holy Spirit changes our desires and insights. So we cooperate with God's work, this synergistic work. It's still God's work, but we cooperate because he has changed us from the inside out. Now, here's the thing with this synergistic work, this sanctification work, right? You and I cannot stop it, but at times we can slow it down. Right? This is the, the, the idea of that you can't completely fall out of the grace of God, but you can step out for a moment, and God will say, okay. See how that goes for you. In fact, it's actually something that Paul says to do with other Christians. If they are in unrepentant sin, cast them out. Give them over to Satan. Not for the sake of condemnation, but the sake of that, that they will be turned and come back. That they'll start living back into the grace of God and work in this synergistic, cooperate with what God is doing. Now, God who started the work, he will finish the work. This, some of us make it a lot harder a lot harder. And then ultimately, he glorifies us because we are united in him. It is all God's work, one work. He who called us, he will surely finish it. Let's give a little perspective. We are all the young child 
that is holding up our hands to the Father's glorious hands. And at times, from our perspective, we might look like we're standing on our own. And we're, sometimes we're holding on tighter, and sometimes we let go, and sometimes we forget that he's actually there. But the reality in our life, the reality of this doctrine of grace, is the Father never lets go of his sheep. He never lets go of his children. He holds on tightly, and he will never let us go. That is the grace of God, that we are his beloved children in which he'll never let go. Psalm 63, 8 says this, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Brothers and sisters, cling to the Lord. Cling to the loving Father that holds you tightly and will never let you go. Let us pray. Gracious and loving Father, I thank you for holding on. I thank you for the ability to walk, the ability to walk with you, to know you. I thank you that you are a God that is gracious and forgiving, and when times I forget and the times that I try to let go, that you are there. At times you let me scrape my knee. But you never let go. And at times you swoop in and hold me tight when I am weak and when I am fearful. I thank you that you will never let us go, Lord. Lord, help our souls. Help us all cling to you, to be mindful of your presence, to be mindful of your grasp and your care, to be mindful that you are a God that promises to guard and to protect us. Help us to faithfully live in that protection and not wander off. Praise be to God for your grace and your undeserved mercy. Help us to love you more today, Lord. We believe. Help us in our unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.